Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We are something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Danya Akkad, a senior investigations editor at Middle East Eye, focused on issues facing women, human rights, energy, and technology. Our conversation today is about a man who went to Jordan, was arrested, and then disappeared. Danya, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. Now, you've written a story from Middle East Eye about an Emirati businessman living in exile in Turkey who went to Jordan last month, was detained, released, and then effectively disappeared. His name is Khalaf al-Ramati. Tell us, first of all, who he is. Yeah, so Khalaf al-Ramati has a really interesting story. He's of a 58-year-old businessman who grew up in Abu Dhabi. And I don't know a whole lot about, about his childhood. Um, I wasn't able, his family did not want to comment for this story, but I was able to talk to friends who um, knew him when he was ha, had his career sort of rolling. So when it, his career was at his prime, he was actually a fairly, as I understand it, high-ranking Emirati official. He worked for the government. He was the assist, assistant undersecretary in Abu Dhabi's public works department. And he was also responsible for Emirati patients who were seeking medical assistance abroad. In the, and this was in the court of Mohammed bin Zayed. He was also in charge of the investments of the um, Abu Dhabi National Investment Authority in Egypt. So he was a well-known uh, face for the rulers in Abu Dhabi. As I understand it, he was close with Sultan bin Zayed, the half-brother of Mohammed bin Zayed. So he's known to the royal family. I also understand from his friends that he was just kind of well-known generally in Abu Dhabi. So this is somebody who clearly was trusted by the rulers, had a lot of work he was doing for, for his country. And I understand that he he was a member of ISLA at some point. But in 2002, when the Emirati authorities started kind of clamping down on ISLA, he removed himself. He said, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Then tell us who Al-Isla is. It's a it's an Islamist political party, which I believe was operating in, in the Emirates for, for decades and had been approved by the rulers as a civil society organization when it when it first started up. It's it's perceived as an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, and this is why Emirati authorities have such an issue with it. But its members deny that it has any links with the transnational organization, you know, funding links. It may have some ideological inspiration, but they they deny any sort of physical financial link. So he was a well-respected, well-connected uh, individual in Abu Dhabi. He was also a member of Al-Isla. He leaves Al-Isla in 2002. But take us forward to 2011. What happens to Al-Isla in 2011? In 2011, a wide group of, of people, so it's lawyers, students, activists, 
academics, Emiratis, demand reform in the country. They put a petition to the leaders and they say, we want, we want to have some reforms. And this is, you know, around the time of the start of the Arab uprisings across the region. So they're asking for reforms. And the following year, the authorities start cracking down. They start arresting those who were part of this petition. Included in those signatories are members of Islah. So they're they're rounded up. And in 2013, in the largest mass trial in the history of the UAE, which is called sometimes the UAE 94 because there were 94 defendants. So they're they're tried and 61 of them are convicted. And the charge, the, the conviction is they were trying to overthrow the government. Halif al-Ramethi is wrapped up in this case, not because he's a member of Islam, but as I'm told, he was called in by authorities a year before the conviction. So this is 2012. He was called in and he was asked to essentially rat out Islam members and the organization. And he said he wouldn't do it. And at that point, my sources tell me that his bank account was frozen or his accounts and that he had a travel ban put on him and his family. So he decided this doesn't look good. And he left the UAE by a land border and somehow got himself to Turkey. Um, So he'd been living in Turkey for the past more than a decade, and he was able to get Turkish citizenship through an investment. So before he went to Jordan, he was working, um, as I understand it, in export-import business in in Turkey with with African countries, and he had become a dual citizen. So he was an Emirati Turkish citizen living in Turkey with his family. And he was convicted, wasn't he, in that trial, sentenced to, what, 15 years uh, in, in absentia. He arrives at the airport in Amman on the 7th of May. Uh, what happens then, Danya? He arrives on the 7th of May, so it's a Sunday. And he, um, as I understand it, was traveling there because he wanted to find a school for his son to learn Arabic or or keep his Arabic going. Because in Turkey, one of his sons was sort of losing losing the Arabic he had, and, and it was really important to Khalid that he have it. So he was thinking maybe of finding a boarding school of sorts where where his son could keep the Arabic going. And he arrives at Queen Alia Airport and he uses his Turkish passport. He hands that over to the police and they look it over. Everything seems fine. And then they do a biometric scan of his eyes. And it's apparently at this point that the police say, well, wait a minute, do you have another citizenship? Uh, are you, you know, another nationality? And he said, well, yeah, I'm Emirati, but I'm, I'm traveling on my Turkish passport. But clearly that biometric scan tripped up something in the system and it, and they realized that there's a warrant out for Halif el-Ramethi that's been circulated on behalf of the UAE. So he basically at this point enters enters the court system in Jordan. He, he had to pay bail to stay uh, free, but his passport was taken and he was awaiting a court process, which was expected to take a couple of weeks. He he was meeting with his lawyers and figuring out what to do. And and this was about a little over 24 hours after he arrived, he was arrested again. And at this point, his lawyers told me that basically the Emiratis had called the Jordanians or called the court system and said that they believed that Romethi was a flight risk. So 
he shouldn't have been allowed to pay bail and they needed to go get him and that and they did. Then Ramethi was supposed to, as I said, still go through this court process. But after an initial hearing in court on the 9th of May, he disappeared. His lawyers and their associates went to find him at the prison, wasn't there. His family has not been told where he's been sent and his lawyers have not been officially told what happened to him. The one the one bit of information that that is known, or at least has been reported, the, the Emirati State News Agency reported that Ramethi had been received in, in the UAE, that the terrorists, quote unquote, had returned. So there's a presumption that he's in the UAE, but no none, none of the countries involved, the, the Jordanians, the Emiratis, or the, or the Turks, whose national is in trouble, have said anything about where he is officially. Mm-hmm. Disappeared uh, renditioned, it sounds like. Now, we know that Middle East countries post 9-11 have used the uh, war on terror to justify the arrest of critics. And this is being facilitated by something called the Arab Interior Ministers Council, otherwise known as Arab Interpol. What can you tell us about what is really a very opaque, shadowy organization, this Arab Interpol? Yeah, you know, Bill, I had I had never heard about this body until January. I don't know about you. It just wasn't it wasn't one that was on my radar. And it only came up for me as I was reporting on a Saudi man named Hassan al-Rabia. So he he was arrested in Morocco in January and he was at risk of extradition back to Saudi Arabia. Hassan's relatives had actually participated in um, anti-government protests in the kingdom's eastern province back in 2011. So again, during the Arab uprisings. And his brother told me that they believed that the Saudi authorities wanted Hassan back to punish the family. According to him, Hassan never participated in protests. And they believed that that Saudi Arabia was trying to extradite him back to, to just you know collectively punish the family. So where does Arab Interpol fit into all of this? Well, the the Saudis had circulated a warrant through the Arab Interior Minister's Council, which is sometimes called the Arab Interpol. And do you know when I first when I first heard Arab Interpol, I was kind of confused. I assumed that it was some sort of subsidiary or body working with the Lyon-based Interpol, but actually it's just not. It's a council, this Arab Interior Minister's Council. It was established in 1982 by Arab League countries. And its aim is to basically work together on cross-border security issues and combat crime. That's what it says. So it's so it's essentially like a fast-tracking information sharing and extradition request system, which in and of itself is not shady and it's not unusual. You know, we have systems like this set up in Europe. And I know that there are some in Eastern Europe. So it's not an unusual thing. And it, and lawyers I talked to said it's, it's a smart thing. It's a thing that regions do and it's helpful. But where I'm hearing there are issues, rights groups and lawyers are telling me that they're pretty concerned about the lack of transparency of this council. If you deal with the Interpol that's based in Lyon, you, you can find out if you have a red notice or warrant out for you. And usually with the help of lawyer, you can get that removed. It's a bit bureaucratic, but you can do it. And if you're vigilant, if you're a dissident, you know, say living in London and you want to know, am I safe to travel? You you can check it regularly and make sure you're okay. But what my sources are telling me about the council, the Arab Interpol, is that you you can't find out whether you have a warrant out for you. 
And therefore, you know, it follows that you can't, you can't get it removed. So the first time you find out that you have a warrant for your arrest is when you're arrested. So I would assume, you know, for example, that Khalif El-Rumethi had no idea that he had a um, airport warrant out for him until he, until that all happened at the airport. So, so Hassan and Khalif were both uh, stopped because of these Arab Interpol warrants. And there's also a third gentleman whose name is Sharif Osman, who's believed to have been detained on, on the same type of warrant. Um, and this would have been back in November. So this is three in, you know, seven months or so. And just to say about Sheriff Osman, he's an Egyptian American who was ahead of COP27 that was held in Egypt last year. He was calling out on social media for Egyptians to protest. And he was arrested in Dubai on this on this Arab Interpol warrant. I should I should be really clear. Um, an Emirati official told the Guardian that he was detained on an Arab Interpol warrant. And the Interpol in Lyon has said that they didn't have a red notice on him. So my sources believe that this this you know indicates that he he did have an Arab Interpol warrant for him. So the question is whether this council is being used increasingly to circulate warrants for politically motivated arrests. It's it's an open question, and it's one that I know human rights groups are asking and investigating. And I'd be I'd be so curious to know historically how these warrants have been used. And I guess I just wanted to make to make two more points about this this Arab Interpol. It's important to bear in mind that these warrants are just the starting point for extraditing someone back to another country. So it takes two to tango, right? So it, it wasn't just that Khalif al-Rumethi had this UAE warrant that was circulated by the council. It also took the Jordanians to send him back. So you have to have kind of a willing country, um, even if this warrant is put out, you have to have a willing a country that's willing to send someone back. And I also wanted to just mention something. I, I was talking to a lawyer about this council, um, and this is a lawyer with a lot of cross-border experience. He was sort of pointing out, well, the UAE regularly extrajudicially renders people back to the UAE, for example, Princess Latifa. So I was saying, well, then why bother to go through this whole Arab Interpol rigmarole? And he said, well, it's it's cheaper than spying. So if you put out a warrant for someone, um, rather than, say, having to follow them regularly or use some sort of spyware, you will know when they go through checkpoints or when they go to airports simply by having these warrants out for their arrest. So I thought that was kind of an interesting and slightly slightly dark point. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Middle East Eyes, Dania Akkad. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me ask you this, Dania. Um, we're seeing Arab states such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE and others take the view that the arrest of political dissidents is an internal matter and that criticism from other countries represents an infringement of sovereignty. Do you think it is proving an increasingly effective tactic, that idea that, look, we deal with this, you keep your noses out, if you make a complaint, if you criticize us, you are stepping on our sovereignty? Yeah, you know, um, I've been thinking about this and... I'm not entirely sure it's an increasing tactic. I, you know, my reporting would suggest that these kind of arrests have been happening for some time now. 
And it seems to me that there's there's very little that foreign governments and the UN and its working groups can do to to free free dissidents if these governments are so intent upon holding them, whatever their reasoning, if it's, you know, our sovereignty is our sovereignty and back off, or if it's, you know, oh, these people are terrorists, back off, you know, whatever the reasoning. And it, and it seems to me increasingly that it's really upon individuals to assess where it's safe to go now, given how governments are behaving. And I mean, the government's both taking the dissidents and the government's sort of just watching it happen. And I think I think the real issue is the lack of the rule of law where these dissidents are being taken, and then the lack of the the appetite or power of countries like the U.S. and the U.K. to to do all that much about it. And I, one thing I did want to say about all this is I, I I think there's a real what I'm seeing is a real contrast between these countries' PR machines and then the arrest of these dissidents. That's that's something that is increasingly striking to me, and maybe it's just because I'm sort of watching this happen up close, or I'm not up close, but sort of watching it very carefully. Um, maybe it's something that that was always this, but I just wanted to give an example of something that kind of just, just, I feel like really shows sort of the contrast. Last week, I was I was at a, a gathering of journalists and content makers in, in the UK and just was chatting to different people. And I was talking to one company who create content and they were saying, oh, wow, Saudi Arabia is investing so much right now in, in different companies. And, oh, we just created this Snapchat fashion show dubbed in Arabic which would, for them. And I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, it emerged that this uh, 29-year-old activist in Saudi Arabia, her name is Mahel El Otaibi was arrested over her Snapchat and Twitter posts, which, which were talking a lot about um, women's rights and abolishing guardianship laws. So, you know, here you've got this sort of content being created in London to for, for young Saudis about fashion, and you have young Saudis being arrested over their Snapchatting. I just, I do find it quite a, quite a stark contrast. Yeah. And you know, as, as you as you point out, the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, all of these Gulf countries are being assiduous in splashing out the cash and and using PR to present an image of themselves that you know tries to fit and does fit in many ways comfortably with with what the West likes to see. It's a it's it's a kind of a, an echo chamber. So the UAE, for example, is a tolerant and an open society. Saudi Arabia, under the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman, is is a moderate, open, and accessible country, whereas before it was repressive and closed. Uh, which brings me to COP28 in Dubai, happening later this year. And you know, there will be much talk of human rights. But the Emiratis and other Gulfies and other repressive uh, states involved will define human rights as the right to clean air and water, a sustainable environment, and a sustainable future. Um, yeah, those are all definitely good and worthy human rights. But what about the other human rights? The right to uh, free speech, the right to free association, accountable governance, a free media, freedom from arbitrary arrest and torture. You know, they're kind of presenting this on the one hand, if you if you criticize us on how we deal with our political prisoners, you're stepping on our sovereignty. However, we're more than willing to talk about human rights where it pertains to 
the environment and, and, and climate action. You know, it's a clever strategy. I'm just wondering, you know, if you have any thoughts on on how that will play out uh, in the months uh, running up to COP28 in Dubai. Yeah, um, well, I mean, to start with, I think the Emiratis are already struggling even with just this environmental message. Um, it's been interesting the past couple of weeks. There's a lot of questions about whether they can actually deliver a serious COP28 that takes the climate agenda forward. Obviously, there's there's issues with the head of COP28, you know, who's the head of the state oil company, controversial choice. And, you know, you've had over 100 uh, US and EU lawmakers calling for his removal. And, and it seems to be everybody's kind of watching, like, are, are they actually going to be able to, um, to, to have a serious COP28? Or, or is that going to pass? So first of all, I think they, that they're already struggling with that that environmental end of things, but are they going to be successful in excluding focus on human rights in the country? So rights, not just, um, as you say, rights to, to clean air and water, but, but free speech, you know, free media, et cetera. Well, I think COP27 in Egypt is a good starting point, um, a place to kind of see how things went there. And, you know, I don't know, I'd be curious to know what you think, Bill, but in, in the run-up to all of that, I think it provided quite a lot of opportunities for human rights activists to kind of stand next to their climate rights uh, colleagues and have a platform and say, hey, wait a minute, look at what's going on here in Egypt. You know, Greta Thunberg, for example, boycotted the, the event that got a lot of attention. You know, I have to be honest, like I found myself following some of these COP27 meetings just to see what would happen um, with the drama between Allah Abdul Fattah's family and the British government. So I think as clever as the Emiratis may be with, with this sort of greenwashing platform, I think also human rights activists and advocates, at least at, at COP27 in some ways, I thought proved pretty successful in, in taking that platform back or, or sharing and using it for their own purposes. You know, I also just wanted to like raise one thing, and I don't know if this is a little bit off topic, but one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately with reporting and especially reporting on on NEOM, the, the Saudi Arabian, the, the massive project, the mega project. And I've been thinking a little bit about this weird contrast again uh, between you know, what, what's happening to dissidents in these countries versus how much money is being pumped into these uh climate change technologies. In Neom, there's going to be a lot of technology that's, that's kind of tested out and tried for the first time. Um, some of that is has to do with solar solar energy. And, and as I understand it, somehow getting solar energy from space. This is one project I've been looking at. That kind of project takes so much investment, you know, so much money. And I've been wondering, you know, how, how dependent is the world on countries that have lots of money but are authoritarian to kind of get these things off the ground and, and come up with solutions. So um, I don't know, that's sort of an area that I'd like to investigate a bit more. It's sort of this weird contrast between the, the need for the investment, but the these awful human rights records. And it's kind of, you know, it'd be easy to sort of cast these guys aside and say, well, your rights records stink. We're not going to take your investment, but I wonder how beholden, how beholden we will be to their investment. And, whether that might be an opening somehow for a dialogue about human rights um, in these countries. I don't know. Something I'd like to look more into. Yeah, well, I think I think you should, because I think you, you're really onto something. And, you know, it's just coming back to the UAE and, and, you know, shining a light on the human rights abuses 
Yeah, I would be remiss if I I, I didn't uh, mention at least uh, prisoners like Ahmed Mansour, Muhammad al rokin Hayat al-Nasser, all of them prisoners of conscience, all of them uh, being treated appallingly. And will that get the coverage that it needs at COP28? I'm not sure, given that the UAE is such a repressive, such a surveillance society, it's going to be very hard to see there being much coverage, certainly within the UAE. But I don't know. What, what do you think, Tanya? Well, you know, my impression is that I, I've been getting a lot more sort of sources in the last couple of weeks, even just just literally the last couple of weeks, um, sources coming, wanting to talk about UAE uh, prisoners of conscience, particularly the UAE 94, you know, wanting to raise their cases because COP28 is is going to be happening. So it's like this sort of anchor point to kind of get people to start talking around. So I guess from outside the UAE, I'm seeing a lot more sort of discussion. I think COP28 is inspiring, but I also understand your 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 point that within the UAE, are people going to be openly able to talk about these cases? I, some of the reporting that I've seen, I think this was in the Financial Times, there was some memo sent out to participants uh, of COP28, basically saying, respect the laws of our country, protesting is illegal in this country. So I think there's questions about like how able anyone that's going to COP28 is going to be to say, to say anything openly without having problems with the authorities there. So yeah, it's hard to say, but I think from the outside, I'm seeing COP28 as a as an opportunity that people are starting to take advantage of to talk about cases that that aren't always getting a light shined shun on them, mostly because these cases have been going on for so long and it's really depressing. It's hard, I think, sometimes for people to find a new angle or a new reason to talk about them, but they're still happening. These these men are still languishing in in prisons. You know, Ahmed Bansour apparently without a mattress or a blanket or a pillow, you know? So it's shocking and ongoing. Yeah, yeah. And in a tiny cell, a concrete cell, denied access to books and uh, extraordinary mistreatment of political prisoners in the United Arab Emirates. And and the other thing is that uh, prisoners, when they have served their sentences, are still being detained. This is the other aspect of it that perhaps people are not aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, the UN um, working group put out a report basically saying that as far as they could see, 12 of the UAE 94, so this would have been, there were 61 convicted, and then several of those um, fled into exile, but most of them were were then detained um, and imprisoned. Twelve of those, according to the UN, have been held past their sentences. But actually, if you if you talk to human rights groups, so for example, the Emirates Detainees Advocacy Center, who, who follow these cases closely, and also I think it's Human Rights Watch, they both tally that there are at least fifty of the UAE ninety four detainees who've been held past their sentences. And in fact, one man. His name's Abdullah El Halu was sentenced to three years and he finished his term in 2017, but he's still behind bars. So yeah, they're they're being held past their sentences and it's not it's not necessarily getting a whole lot of attention. I think I think a lot of people just they see UAE 94, they're not really sure what it is, and it sort of passes a lot of people by. But there are, you know, dozens of of these guys 
again, languishing in these prisons. And, you know, the UAE didn't respond to the UN when it put out its report or, you know, it gave, it gave the UAE 60 days to respond to its uh, report, basically saying these men are being arbitrarily detained and the UAE didn't respond. What, what are you supposed to do with that? Yes, indeed. Uh, what do you do with that? And um, what do we do? What can we do about Khalif uh, Alamaythi? What, what further do you know about his situation? I know that in the absence of, of any official word from the Turks, the Jordanians, or the Emiratis, his lawyers have have filed complaints or you know um, requests for investigation with some UN um, working groups. So now those working groups will take a couple of months, I would assume, to investigate the situation. And then again, give the UAE a chance to respond. And then the UN will come back with their findings once either the UAE has responded or that time limit has gone, has passed. So it's a, it's a really long process. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily change much. It just, it just would, would give information hopefully to his family and his lawyers about specifically where he's being held. And it also, you know, puts the Emirati authorities on notice that people are watching, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily help him free himself or, or, or get himself out of, out of wherever he is now. I've heard through his lawyers that his family are, as you can imagine, quite distressed. His friends are shocked by what has happened to him. But I think there's also this sense that it's just a reminder of the, the long arm of the UAE and what the UAE is willing to do to get people back that it wants. So just um, kind of an, another dark chapter in, in this story. Yeah, I was just going to say, too, that for the families, it it, it has to be absolutely terrifying because the modus operandi of the Emiratis, the Saudis, is that they grab these people. They're disappeared for a lengthy period of time. So it happened to Ahmed Mansour, for example. In many cases, they're tortured. The, the uh, forced confessions are brought to the court. They're convicted on the forced confessions, uh, sentenced to very long terms, and then stuck into these prisons in appalling circumstances. It must be just a nightmare for his family, as it is for so many other families uh, of people who have been grabbed by these uh, repressive states and and simply lost in these labyrinthine uh, prisons. Yeah, I think I think about these families a lot, and I think about the prisoners a lot. I just I can't imagine being held in solitary confinement as as so many of these men have been. I know, as example, Ahmed Mansour, I think, was held in solitary for several years. I can't, I can't really sort of fathom what that does to you. And I also think, you know, the families are watching from outside, not really knowing what's going on, or maybe in some cases getting calls, sporadic calls here and there. But I also think about these families that have had to flee their countries and, and start up, you know, in Turkey or in London, start up these whole new lives that they probably didn't imagine that they were going to have to have, you know, they probably imagined they were going to be in their own, um, their own countries. And I think that's such a loss for the UAE, for Saudi Arabia to 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 lose people like this. It's it's also a very hard situation to be in to navigate, you know, these new places. And um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot a lot of difficult circumstances in so many different ways for all these people involved in these cases. Indeed, there is. And um, I I know that you will be continuing to follow uh, 
this story as well as others, Tanya. Um, so I'll, I'll keep an eye out, uh, watching on Middle East Eye and what you're doing there. And uh, thank you again for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. I always love speaking with you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Danya Akkad, a senior investigative editor at Middle East Eye. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Danya. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search for us on our library of more than 150 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. 